uh, thank you so much. That really was beautiful. Um, I really appreciate that. Hey, friends, we are um, into the third week now of our Advent season, the season of celebrating that God fulfilled the promise of arriving in the manger, the incarnation, God with us. We've been celebrating and talking about this hope that the incarnation brings us, the peace that Jesus promises us, the joy that we have knowing that our Lord is with us. We do this in anticipation of the arrival yet to come, his promised return. This year, we've been focusing, well, on Christmas in focus on how throughout the centuries, the birth of the Christ was coming into focus through the work of the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And today we're going to be looking more deeply at the work of Jesus, our king. But let me start by saying this, your God is too small. I can say that with absolute confidence because there is no way that a finite mind can grasp an infinite God. There is no way that a time-bound creature such as ourselves can begin to wrap our heads around an infinite being who is the beginning and the ending and all things in between. No matter how big we have made God, no matter if we ponder the mysteries of God from morning to night, if we study the scriptures throughout all of our life, if we go to worship services and meditate on the words of God, if we go to the great teachers throughout the ages and read tomes on theological uh, reflections, uh, all of it would still find us lacking to grasp how high, how deep, how wide, how long, how great is the love of God for us through Jesus Christ our Son. That's not to be an insult. <laughs> That's not to discourage you. That's just an invitation to say our God can never, in a sense, be big enough. And yet, what we've been doing this Christmas season is been trying to embiggen your view, your understanding of God. Yes, I did use a word invented by the Simpsons right there, if you know your pop culture. We have been trying to embiggen our view of God. We've talked about Jesus Christ, our prophet. Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. And so we have been encouraged now to reflect on the words that the prophet speaks over us. And we say this in light of the fact that, well, let me put it this way. I hope wonderful words have been spoken over you during the course of your life and are being spoken over you by the people in your life. But no matter what has been said, good or bad, to us, over us, by parents, by siblings, by family, by friends, by churches, by whoever, hear and lean most heavily upon the words of Jesus Christ to us, who calls us his beloved, who calls us his brothers and sisters, who calls us and welcomes us into the family of God, who calls us redeemed, who calls us sanctified, who calls us his own. And I'm just going to point us back to the Ephesian series. Know that we are saints. We are defined not as sinners any longer, though sin mars our lives and affects our world. And we seek further reconciliation and look forward for the redemption of all things. And yet we are still the miracle of miracles. We're still yet saints, holy ones standing in Jesus Christ. Let those words take root in your heart and mind and soul and being. Woo! We talked about Jesus, our great 
high priest. And where we went last year, we'll pick up last year, last week, we'll pick up right where, where, where we ended. When Jesus Christ, the great high priest, became also the great and final sacrifice for us. At that moment, we remember that the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. What was happening was that the Holy of Holies was pouring out from that sacred space onto the world and out onto us. God would be finally and fully now with us in the most real way by the power of his Holy Spirit coming upon the body of Christ. And we talked about those wonderful words from Hebrews where, it was, where we are invited to approach the throne of, what was it? The throne of, anybody remember? Judgment, anger, wrath, all those things that we can sometimes associate with God. No, his throne of grace. We are welcome to approach the throne of grace. I like that because the throne, keep that image in mind here for just a moment, but it's a throne of grace where we receive what we need. It says, come and receive what you, you need, mercy and grace. And so again, come to Jesus Christ, the great high priest, and know that his sacrifice is sufficient forever for the sins of the world and certainly for the sins that we all commit to bring us into right relationship with God, to atone for all that would separate us so that we can be again with God. We're just gonna keep emphasizing Emmanuel, God with us. It has been God's heart and desire to be with us and with his people since the beginning. And now today we are turning towards Jesus Christ, our King. Each of these roles, the prophet, the priest, the king, they're in a sense encapsulated, pulled together every time we call Jesus the Christ because Christ means christened or anointed and prophets were anointed and priests were anointed and kings were anointed. He is Christ, the anointed one, anointed for all of these roles and more. And today we turn toward, towards his role as our king. Now, let me say this as we want to um, move our mind and hearts into a place of receptivity for God's word to us this morning. I think that many people, maybe even if they wouldn't profess Jesus Christ as their savior and their Lord, they could conceptually agree with or wrap their head around, well, Jesus Christ, if you're going to make something of him, you would certainly make him a prophet. You would want to believe that he had words from God, he taught, he edified his people. I, I, I could go there. I, I could believe that. That just sounds religious, and Jesus is probably pretty religious, right? So I can get the prophet role. I can get the priest role. That really sounds religious, actually. Maybe I never thought about Jesus as a priest, but yeah, yeah, that fits. Jesus, the great high priest, sacrificed his life. Yeah, that, that, that fits into the paradigm I might play out there. I think that this role of Jesus Christ, our king, may be the one that the world hasn't wrapped its head around at all. And perhaps we in the church might be guilty of also saying, and maybe we haven't spent enough time considering Christ as our king. And yet, when we turn to the Christmas story, when we turn to the Christmas carols, I dare you, I double dog dare you, I triple dog dare you, Christmas movie references here, to go to these Christmas stories, to sing one of these Christmas carols and not hear the undertones or explicit, explicit, that sounds like it's graphic, or just overtones of Christ the King. 
The ancients got, the people of God got, those who have meditated and reflected and pondered this story deeply have gotten perhaps what we miss in the sentimentality of the baby born in the manger, that that baby is a king. That baby is a ruler. That baby is the king of all creation. And so what I'm hoping on the other end of this worship service is we're going to go into the rest now of our Advent season basking in, glorifying in, worshiping, obeying, submitting to, oh, there's words we don't always like, the king, the king of all creation, the king of the cradle, the king of our lives. And so with that said, we're actually going to turn to the Christmas story. There's many, many places, of course, that we could turn to hear uh, the overtones and the undertones of the kingdom of God. And yet, what better place than to turn to Luke chapter 2? Don't worry, come back Christmas Eve. We're coming back to the classic Christmas story. But listen now for the kingdom undertones woven throughout the Christmas story. Here we go. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went up there to register with Mary, whom was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. Will you say good news? Good news. Bring you good news that will cause great joy. Say great joy. joy. Thank you. Good news and great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Our great big God had been up to something from the very dawn of creation and working through the plan of redemption. Our great big God was up to something and it was coming to its culmination in the birth of this one who would be king. And these kingdom themes and undertones again run throughout the scriptures and throughout this Christmas story. In fact, whenever we look at it from that passage, we see that Jesus Christ begins under the rule of a kingdom, one synonymous with kings and rulers, Julius Caesar Augustus. He had been in power for more than a quarter century. It was about age 60 at the time when Jesus was born. And he established what others had sought before him and were unable to do. He established the Pax Romana, right? The peace of Rome. He pulled the empire together, which stretched from Gibraltar to Jerusalem, from Great Britain to the Black Sea. He built an infrastructure that would hold the kingdom together. 
And even before he died, people were already calling upon him as the son of a god, and it became the official Roman worship to worship Caesar as Lord. And yet that peace that we know that he established had a darker side, the flip side. That peace was established at the end of a spear, quite literally. He established peace by simply eradicating, doing away with, putting out any who would oppose his rule and oppose the kingdom. So we know that his was a bloody peace established by the strength of a mere man, one who we do not confess to be the Son of God and the Lord of all creation. We know then that when Jesus was born shortly thereafter, a star appeared in the east and magi, wise men, rulers in their own right, came to honor Jesus Christ and they came to worship and honor him as a king, king of the Jews, bringing gifts that would reflect his kingdom and his mission and his ministry, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And they did exactly what you would think one would do if they came to find a king. They went to the palace in the highest place in the land, and Herod ruled on that spot. And if you look at the map and you can see the images, I encourage you to maybe to do this on your own as you reflect upon the Christmas story. It's amazing how Bethlehem literally sits in the shadow of Herod's temple. Herod feigned an interest in knowing who this one born king of the Jews would be, and he conferred with his council, and they discerned, yeah, somebody's going to be born in Bethlehem at some point who's supposed to be the king of the Jews. He pretended to have an interest in also worshiping this one, but those wise men were warned in a dream, and they escaped out by night and never went back to Herod, and in his fury, he sent his soldiers to kill all of the baby boys in Bethlehem, all of them under the age of two, just to be sure. The first martyrs for Christ, the King. As we look through the ministry then of Jesus Christ, we still see our great big God is up to something. He stands in a court before one who is declared ruler, and Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus did not deny, but said that his kingdom was not of this world. And it was that claim to kingship that gave him the leeway and the leverage, so to speak, to actually enact the plan for the execution, the sacrifice, the death of the king that we know would take him to that cross. And there's much more that could be said to it, but I'll skip on ahead. And then if we look at where things are pointing towards where this great big God is up to something in Christ the king, we finally then read the declaration in the book of Revelation in chapter 19, where we see that he is the one on whom it is written, king of kings and lord of lords. He is king of kings and he is the Lord of Lords. He's not just a king. He is the king. He is the king who have kingship and dominion over all other kings. He is the Lord over all who would claim and desire to be worshipped as Lord. He is king of kings. And he is Lord of Lords. And then if we look then in the story of Jesus and in his life and ministry, let's remember this. Mark actually really highlights it well as Mark, the gospel of Mark, so often does. 
Mark, our shortest gospel. Mark, the one who wants to not waste any words. Mark, the one who wants to kind of drive the point home in his whole structure of the telling and the story of Jesus kind of holds off. He actually skips over the whole Christmas story. Bah humbug. I always mention that, but can you believe that? He skips over that whole Christmas story. He gets into the story of John the Baptist who's preparing the way. But before we even get to the end of chapter one, we see Mark showing Jesus launching out into his ministry and he reserves those first words of Jesus that he would record. And what does he record in his gospel is the very first words of Jesus. The time has come. The kingdom the kingdom the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe the good news i have a buddy who when uh, he was installed in his first church this is now several years ago i gave him a call and asked him how it was going and how you know i said i said what do you do you know what did you do for your kind of your first choice your first impression what impression are you going to make and he was pretty happy and it was a pretty good move he said before anything else he walked up and all he did was quote mark his first words before his congregation, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. And then he went on to tell them, this was the preaching of Jesus's ministry from beginning to end. And this will be my preaching, this will be my word, this will be my calling to you to keep preaching that the time is at hand, the kingdom of God is here, it is near, take Hold of it as you call and know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Repent and believe this good news. And I keep saying it. I'm going to keep working on it. Repentance. It's who we are. Repentance. It's what we do. Repentance. It's what gets this whole thing started. Repentance. It's a good word. When you're hanging out with your friends on Friday night and they say, what should we do? I keep encouraging you. You be the one who says, hey, I've got an awesome plan. And when they look to you and say, what? Say, we should repent and turn to the Lord. It is good news. And they'll think you're weird. They already think you're weird. But just be weird for Jesus who calls us to repent even as we think about coming into our new year and celebrating the Reformation that brought us into here. Remember, those were Luther's first words as well. His first theses tacked onto that door in Wittenberg was the call to repentance. The first and ongoing order of business for all who know Jesus Christ and Savior and Lord is the work of our repentance. That is how we come into the kingdom. That is the posture we lay before Jesus Christ, our King. And what sustains us, what sustains many of us. Who, who here says the Lord's Prayer recently? Anybody say the Lord's Prayer recently? I hope. Every hand should go up. Just lie to me and tell me you've said the Lord's Prayer recently. Please, just, all right, thank you, David. King David there. Um, we should be repeating the words that the Lord taught us to pray when you have no other words of your own. And maybe it's better to not have words of your own. Go to the words of Jesus Christ, who when his disciples asked him, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray like this. Our Father, who art, we'll use the old language. I like the old language. It makes me feel, you know, more, more reverent. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name, your your kingdom come. How do we miss it? How do we miss these kingdom overtones so often woven throughout the life and the ministry and the story of Jesus? How do we miss that he's a king? Because 
We don't want to have a king. There's the turn right there in the message. All of these things made explicit for us in the story of Christmas and the carols we sing and the scriptures we're called to read. And we miss it because we don't want it. Who here wants a king? Nobody's going to raise their hand. That's the one. I'm, I, I like trick you all the time. Sorry. We, we don't want it. Here's what we're, I'm inviting you to reflect on in these days to come leading up to our celebration of Christmas. There's that part of us where we know we say we want a king, we call Christ Lord and King, and and we know that's where we're supposed to go. But if we're honest with ourselves and honest with the human condition and honest with our human nature, we don't want a king, we want a democracy. We want a voice, we want a vote, we want a say in the matter. We want to say, represent me, and if I don't like how you represent me, then we're gonna vote you out of office. No, we don't want a king, but we need a king. We're created for a king. We're created to humbly submit our lives to the king of all creation, to worship and honor and glorify and serve him. All of our existence, we were made for a king, yet there's something in our nature that rejects the king. I I, I heard... um, A preacher once reflect upon this and he put it this way, that democracy at its best is merely a medicine. Democracy at its best is merely a medicine to stave off the sins of men and the sins of the world. It mediates, it stands between, it tries to guard us against the sin that plagues our world. But medicine isn't food. The best that we can come up with on our own is a medicine to try and stave off the brokenness of the world. Yet what we know, what we need is the banquet, the feast set before us for a king where we feast, where we dine, where we're nourished, where we celebrate, where we raise a cup. That's what we were made for. That's what we long for. That's where Christ the King is drawing us. There's many things, of course, that we could say about the kingship of Jesus Christ, but wanting to make it practical and drive it home, I want to talk about three things and then a fourth to drive it home about Jesus Christ the King. And here we go. If you're a note taker, take note on these. Otherwise, these will be printed and these are all reposted, all of that. Three, three things and then a fourth bonus for the king. Um, what the king claims we give, <laughs> what the king claims we give, when the king calls we come, and what the king decrees we do. First, what the king claims we give. What the king claims we give. This is our call. This is our invitation that is drawn out for us and revealed to us even in the story of creation. That we have been tasked with, given the role of, to carry the identity of stewards. And the foundation of a steward is that the steward isn't the owner. The steward manages on behalf of the owner. We are stewards of all that God has created. We manage on his behalf. And everything that we do is to reflect that God is the creator, the owner, the king. And we manage on God's behalf. I want to read a little story uh, that uh, I found online that I think reflects this well. Once upon a... I'm just going to read it for you because the writer wrote it better than I could. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. One day, there was a gardener 
who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land, a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard all this, and he said, My, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if I gave the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will breed. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king also discerned his heart and said, Thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed him. <laughs> the nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, Let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Ouch. <laughs> I, really, uh, I really like that one. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. That is the revelation, the revealing, the unveiling of our hearts. When we give, when we steward, when we surrender all to the king, simply for his glory for his honor, for his worship, because he is worth it. We very often use the phrase, or I know I use the phrase, uh, calling Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord. Let's just change those words for a moment right now. Jesus Christ our Savior and King. The reality is that Jesus can only be Savior if, in fact, he is King and Lord. And if, in fact, he is King, Lord, then he is the one who can save. There is something about Jesus, our Savior, that resonates in the hearts and the minds and the lives of many. We certainly want the Savior. Even if we feel we're just hedging our bets between heaven and hell, hedging our bets if there's a God or not God, sure, I'll just call upon Jesus Christ as Savior. That seems like a great deal. <laughs> get saved. Get out of jail free card. I'll take Jesus as savior. But that is in many ways we'd say only the first step. I would implore you. I would offer to pray this with you to call upon Jesus as your savior. I know actually in some circles it's in fashion to pray the quote-unquote sinner's prayer. It's in some fashion for some churches to say the sinner's prayer is never found in the Bible. Let me just say this if you've heard that or been following any of those debates. All are sinners. All are called to pray. <laughs> All are called to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. It may not be found in a formulaic terms throughout the scriptures, and yet throughout the scriptures we see the evidence of sinners praying to God. We see people coming before Jesus, and in light of his holiness, they say, depart from me. And he says, no, come and follow me. We hear in Romans the invitation to confess Jesus Christ as our Savior and to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and to know that we will have eternal life. So in a formulaic way, no, but all over every page of Scripture, absolutely. 
all sinners, all who have fallen, all who are broken, all who are in need, all who want to know God are invited to call upon Jesus Christ as Savior and to have eternal life in him. But again, that is perhaps just the beginning. Then to know him and follow him, to submit to him fully as Lord then, giving everything to him. And so what will it look like perhaps during this Christmas season to reflect upon the state of lordship, of kingship, what the king claims we give? Certainly we give our lives but have we thought about our homes belonging to God to be a place of welcoming, a place of hospitality, a place of refuge for those in need? Have we thought about our car or our cars belonging to God and using them to care for people, to serve people, to deliver to people, to promote the work of the kingdom? Have we thought about our closets belonging to God and how much is in there or what isn't in there or what should be in there? What would the king make of our closets? What would the king make of our budgets? What would the king make of our giving? What would the king make of our words? What would the king make of our thoughts? What would the king make of our heart? Submit all, give all to the king. Which brings us to the next point. When the king calls, we come. When the king calls, we come. This is the call to obedience, but also a deeper submission. When Jesus is speaking to his followers, he declares himself to be the shepherd and for us to be the sheep. But he also gives us the insight that the sheep know the voice. They know the call of the shepherd. Take time to quiet your hearts and your minds and the busyness of your lives this Christmas season to hear the call of the shepherd over your life. Earlier this summer, I invited you to practice, and I want to remind you of it today because I think there's something to it. We very often, in a platitude way of trying to frame our lives, Lord, I give this day to you, I give my all to you, I submit everything to you, and it sounds good, and it is good, and I, of course, encourage you to do that. But what does that look like when up here we're saying, it's all yours, God? I've invited you to take it down to a level to say, God, what if each and every day I would be willing to give you an hour? I'd be willing to give you one hour of my day, interrupt my day, interrupt my day with a phone call and somebody who needs some counsel, interrupt my day with an opportunity to go and deliver a meal, interrupt my day with the invitation to maybe pray with a coworker, interrupt my day to sit down with one of my kids and walk them through a problem they're having, interrupt my day, maybe just be in deeper prayer for the pandemic, for the state of the world, for the economic, the environmental, the political mess that we find ourselves in. What would it look like to submit a day? When we talk about giving an hour to God, it can seem almost trivial, it can seem almost trite. An hour, oh, surely a devout Christian would give more than an hour. And yet so often a devout Christian doesn't even give that hour. <laughs> so give an hour. Just think about what that could do if each day of your life you would wake up and you'd say, God, you have the right as my king to interrupt me at any point. And I know we have times and expectations and meetings and we, we don't have to disregard all that stuff. But to say, God, when that interruption of the king comes, I'm giving it to you. Do something amazing with my obedience, with my submission. 
See, obedience, I mean, obedience in many ways can be really easy. We know that God calls us to do certain things. Love God and love neighbor. Forgive our enemies as we have been forgiven. Uh, you know, give unto God. So we know the things we are supposed to obey, but that obedience comes out and flows out of that deeper submission, that deeper surrender, that deeper laying it all before God. So yes, be obedient to what the scriptures tell us to do, what the king claims over our lives, but be submissive, lay it all down before the king. Third point, what the king uh, decrees then is what we do. What the king decrees is what we do. So this just goes back to obeying those simple instructions that we have in the life and the ministry and the teaching of Jesus. Again, I would encourage you in your own time, your own devotional life, to read through that Sermon on the Mount, if nothing else. To read through that Sermon on the Mount and begin to let that soak into the very fiber of your being so that you could say, what would it look like for me to begin to do these things that you call your followers to do? What would it look like for me to begin to forgive the way that you forgave, to give the way that you gave, to love the way that you loved, to do for others as I would have others do for me? Begin living into that obedience to all that the king calls us to do. And then finally, let me drive it home with this. Uh, Carlos and uh, Joy, you can kind of come on up and get ready here to drive it home. So we've talked about what the king claims we give. And of course, he claims our very lives. So give our very lives to him. When the king calls, we come. It's that call to obedience, that call to simply listen to his voice. We've uh, talked about what the king decrees I will do, knowing the words, the teachings, the instructions of Jesus so we can live into them faithfully. But here's the final thought. Don't forget this. What the king offers, we're invited to accept. And this is that turn back to the good news. All that other stuff can sound very submissive, can sound very serving of the king. And well, it should. I don't want to diminish that. In fact, I've spent most of the sermon leaning into that obedience, that offering, that submission, that working for, that giving all to the king. Yes, yes, hallelujah, and amen. Work for the king. But in the end, remember the good news of the king. Because the king tells us this in his words, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yes, we are yoked for the king. Yes, we do our work for the king. Yes, we do our efforts we pr for the kingdom and its advancement. But Jesus says, my yoke, when you're fitted with my work, when you're fitted with my calling, when you're fitted with my service, when you're fitted with submission for me, that yoke, and we could just say it this way, compared to the yoke of the world, compared with the yoke of your boss, compared with the yoke that maybe you've put on yourself for who you think that you need to be and what you need to do, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So remember that this king that we serve, that we give all to, that we honor, that we worship, that we glorify, all that stuff, remember that this king wants to fit us with a yoke that is made just for us, that will feel as natural for us as anything we've ever done. In fact, I would argue, I would submit to you that we really don't find our place of belonging and being, of calling and purpose in the world 
and true, that place of security that we have in our souls until we openly allow ourselves to be yoked by that king and know that our lives are being led in service to him because then we know that we have the love of the Father, the love of the Son, the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then we know that our lives matter and are making a difference. And we're moving forward in service to our King. And that's what our hearts long to do, to quit serving ourselves, to quit serving others in our lives. To start serving the one for whom we were made to serve. So come before the King and accept his offer to fit you perfectly for what he calls you to do, to sustain you by the power of his Holy Spirit, to grow in you those fruits of love and joy and peace and patience, of kindness, of goodness, of faithfulness, of gentleness, of self-control, to give you all that you stand in need of, to do all that he is calling to you to do. Accept those gifts from the king who wants to bestow and pour upon you grace upon grace upon grace, my friends. I love the way that John Newton put it in uh, one of his hymns, one lesser known other than Amazing Grace, that he wrote at the end of Come My Soul. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Let me just say that again, because that's a good one. <laughs> Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, None can ever ask too much. You honor the king when you ask much. You honor the king when you understand that if he is king of all creation, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that you cannot ask too much. And as I pondered this and reflected upon this week, this week I think that sometimes my prayers are too big, but I think the reality is sometimes my prayers are just too selfish. And there's a difference between big prayers and selfish prayers. I know what selfish prayers look like. I'm really good at praying them. I've been doing it for nearly 50 years. <laughs> Maybe I need to start asking bigger prayers rather than selfish prayers. Bigger prayers for my family. Bigger prayers for my church. Bigger prayers for our nation. Bigger prayers for our world. Bigger prayers. 